This morning we once again transition to another text in our passage of Colossians. We've been privileged to examine the Christian family, seeing the relationship between husbands and wives, between parents and children. And this morning we now look upon the relationship between slaves and masters. Just as husbands and wives and parents and children are integral to the success of society, we know that the laborer is also critical. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians chapter 3. And I want to bring to you a message I have titled, The Foundations for a Thriving Society, A Laborer's Work. And please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting for the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Father, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as a Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Master, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You may be seated. Dostoevsky states, The mystery of human existence lives not just in staying alive, but in finding something to live for. Is that not the story of the Christian life? We hear the story all the time. I was empty. I was wayward. But then Christ found me and now I have purpose. Suddenly we say life makes sense because we have found our life's work, which is to love the Lord and live for the Lord. That's who the Lord is. He is not only the author of life, but he purposes life. The Lord determines the value of our lives by giving us purpose in our lives. And we see this in the way we work. We come to our passage this morning, a passage that sanctifies our work, making it not only an an honorable ambition, but a holy one. This morning I am convinced that if we look upon this passage, we will begin to develop a theology of work, Understanding it not as an endeavor of personal ambition, but as an endeavor of the Lord's ambition. By understanding this theology of work, we begin to understand what it means to abound in his work by looking at his instruction to slaves. We must first deal with several obvious questions. One is, why does Paul include instructions for slaves and masters here? He has used his pen and he has used his ink to expand upon the rights and the responsibilities of each member in the family. Husband, wife, father, mother, child. 
But why would he transition here to slaves? And the answer is really quite simple. Because at that time, slaves were considered part of the household. They were just as much a part of the home as any child was. And so in this era, it was logical for Paul then to address slaves in the context of family. That makes it hard for us to understand then what could we possibly learn from this particular section of scripture. To us, it may seem both irrelevant and irreverent. It seems irrelevant because I suspect, first off, none of us have ever been slaves, despite what we may have claimed with our parents. (laughs) I also suspect that none of us have ever had slaves. And that is the word in our text. Some say bondservants, but it is slave. And so it seems irrelevant. But it also seems irreverent because most of us have been taught that slavery is an abomination and that it is something contrary, not fitting to the character of the Lord. And indeed, I think most of us would agree it is. That also brings up the question then, why doesn't Paul condemn it here? That's something that I indeed will address, but not today. Um, In probably next week or the week after just for the sake of time. But where does that leave us when we look upon this text? How can we get anything out of a text that is addressed to slaves? First off, if we believe that the word of God is timeless and relevant and applicable to every generation and every culture, based on that truth alone, then we should all know that indeed there is something to glean from God's word in reading any part of it, including this. And its relevancy comes when we understand or recognize that in Paul's era, slaves made up the majority of the workforce, at least in the Roman Empire. Paul writes to slaves who held a variety of jobs, including many of the jobs that we would consider professional jobs, teacher, doctor, accountant. Slaves could also be found doing all kinds of different tasks, cooking and cleaning, and any skilled labor that we would think of. Slave labor was not just relegated to the meaningless tasks that people didn't want to do. Indeed, it included all kinds of different options during that time. It's thought that the majority of professionals in the Roman Empire were slaves because approximately one-third of the population of Rome and the Roman Empire were slaves. Slavery then was the model for their workforce in that time. It is true that our workforce here in the United States looks different and takes a different form. But when we recognize that their form of industry and their form of economy was centralized around the slave as the primary worker, we begin to see that indeed we have much to learn, even if we disagree with slavery. And so we look upon our text and see that the Christian who works well is the Christian who works for the Lord. We see this spread out from verses 22 through 25. But I want to focus first just on the first two verses and lay out for you a model of that work. And so I want you to note first that a godly laborer works obediently. We have here a structure that is very similar to Paul's command to children in verse 20. But here it says bondservants. servants. 
or slaves. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. This verse is specific in identifying earthly masters. Paul doesn't write here, obey the Lord, obey the one in heaven, or obey your heavenly master. But he specifically calls upon them to obey their earthly master. The literal text reads, masters of the flesh. Unlike our heavenly master, earthly masters are limited. They are limited first by the scope of their ability. Our Lord is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. And he's all-present. But earthly masters are limited in each of these. Our God may do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, wherever he wants, however he wants. But any earthly master is restrained by his physical ability. Earthly masters are also limited by their authority. As sovereign, the Lord's authority extends over all things, over all of creation. In fact, so supreme is God that his authority even extends over these heavenly masters here. Any authority they have then is only delegated to them by the Lord. They are bound only by what he allows. We see, though, from Romans 13 that any person in any authority really only achieves that position because the Lord has granted it to them, because the Lord has placed them there. A Christian worker, though, labors for a heavenly master, and our allegiance to this heavenly master obligates our obedience to the earthly master in this text. The Lord's call to obedience really is not extremely notable. There's nothing real extraordinary here. Slaves, indeed, are expected to obey. That's just a given. And yet they were regarded as lazy, doing just enough to avoid judgment of their masters. In one sense, who could blame them? Most were not there voluntarily. They were there under compulsion. Whether it be they had become slaves as prisoners of war or because of a debt they incurred, some were kidnapped and others were purchased. And some were just simply unfortunate enough to be born to parents who were slaves themselves. So they're not there under their own volition. They're there out of obligation. Many were not even receiving any remuneration or, or payment for their labors. So why would they want to give themselves over fully to this work? Without proper payment, what did it value them to exert their physical bodies and exert their energy and their labors and expend it for something that they're receiving nothing in return? But even in different circumstances today, we still maintain this attitude. Many today still work just enough to avoid discipline or dismissal. And yet as believers, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, our labor is a reflection of our relationship with our Lord. And so in his word, he says, obey your earthly masters. Notice there are two conditions placed on that, placed on obedience. The first is to obey in everything. The Christian worker obeys his master as he would Christ because his master has been placed there by Christ. I appreciate how it was worded in our scripture reading this morning. 
In Titus chapter 2, slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness. And then we have a so that, so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. If the Lord has placed the master in that position, we can trust that the Lord has orchestrated this way for his own purposes which is to glorify himself and bring about good to his people. Admittedly, it's probably very hard to see the Lord in the midst of these severe circumstances of the slaves, especially when it seems that the slaves are are being taken advantage of and mistreated here. And yet if we trust the Lord and trust that he is good, then we must trust that his goodness is in the midst of those circumstances. In every circumstance, in every harsh condition of slavery during Paul's era, the Lord is present. And he's using those circumstances to draw people to himself. Perhaps it's to use a slave's obedience to draw those earthly masters to him through salvation. Or maybe it's just a means to instill into those that are trusting him to give them greater confidence and greater faith in his purpose. Regardless, we know that the Lord is good, and we know that even in the circumstances of work, those circumstances reveal his goodness. And therefore, he says, obey in everything. Bill Arnold suggests that partial obedience is really only disobedience, but made to look acceptable. To obey is to be done completely and totally because we work for the Lord. There's really only one exception to this rule. And it's the same exception that we've noted when we talked about a wife's submission in verse 18 and a child's obedience in verse 20. That exception is when they're being asked to go against the Lord. Learning again from Acts chapter 5, we see that it is acceptable to disregard anything that is contrary to the Lord. Because as Peter says, we must obey the Lord rather than men. But apart from this one condition, the Lord calls for complete obedience to earthly masters. I'm reminded of the words of Thomas Brooks, who says, He who obeys sincerely endeavors to obey thoroughly. And we'll see in a few moments here that indeed we're called to obey sincerely. And it stands to reason then that we would obey thoroughly. The first condition of obedience is to obey in everything. The second condition is rather a lack of condition. Notice what's absent. A master's character. By now you should notice a pattern. With every point that we have developed from this passage, from this text, none of them, a wife's submission, a husband's love, a child's obedience, none of those are dependent upon the character of the other person. Instead, they're all ordained based on a person's condition in Christ. For the slave, his obedience is not determined by his master's character, but by his relationship with Christ. His obedience isn't even determined by his master's spiritual condition. It makes no mention of whether or not the master is a professing believer or not. It's just assumed that obedience will follow regardless. Obedience is still the command. The Lord is pleased by obedience. And let me, let me offer you this. If we love the Lord, 
Should we not delight in the very things that delight him? And so if the Lord is delighted by obedience then, shouldn't we delight in obedience as well? Obedience pleases the Lord because it is a result of our relationship to the Lord. Look at Deuteronomy 11.1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. Repeatedly throughout scripture, Old Testament or New Testament, we see that always obedience and love are connected together. It flows from our love of him. And so we obey our earthly masters because we love our heavenly master. By that alone, obedience is this grand concept of the Christian life. But have you also noticed how it offers freedom? Bound to sin, a slave's labor is heavy and laborious. In fact, the labor of any work is usually heavy and laborious. So much so that people will seek to do the minimum necessary. That's our view of work, that it is burdensome. But the obedience called upon by Christ here offers freedom because it makes obedience part of the joy of our Christian relationship with him and with others. It releases us from work as an obligation and brings us to work as an offering. And so a godly laborer works obediently. I want you to note second, a godly laborer works confidently not as one who is assured by the people around him but as one who is reassured in the work of christ the second part of verse 20 reads not by the way of eye service as people pleasers it was eleanor roosevelt who said you wouldn't worry so much about what others think of you if you realized how seldom they do (laughs) by upbringing People are conditioned to seek the approval of another. Early on, it's the approval of parents that a young child seeks. Later on, as we we grow and, and enter school, we begin to seek the approval of friends. In adulthood, it's the approval of our bosses or even those that we just have a great respect for. And so we strive after that approval. And so we put forth effort to do something and do it well that they may be pleased by us and our work. A proposal of this verse, it transforms work into an extraordinary manner. Because instead of seeking the approval of fellow employees or our supervisors, what we'll see in the next part of this verse is that we look beyond the approval of men. And instead we seek the approval of the Lord. Rather than curry their favor, the godly laborer seeks the favor of the Lord. And the text gives us two descriptions about what to avoid. First, it says, not by the way of eye service. Eye service is that work that's done merely for the purpose of making an impression, specifically, usually, in the presence of the owner or the master or the supervisor. As noted, slaves were considered lazy because... They had a habit of working just enough, usually in front of their masters, to avoid their discipline. They'd work diligently when their master was working, but as soon as that person left, they slackened when they were alone. I know of a man who has a coworker who puts so forth puts forth so little effort 
that the workers in his unit have. They've devised a spreadsheet to calculate the probability of whether or not this man will show up to work. They even have it calculating how many hours he will work this year. That's engineers for you. He misses at least one day a week. But it goes beyond that. Because of their set hours, the people usually show up at different times. One person may show up at 6 a.m. and and leave earlier. Somebody else at 7 and somebody else at 8 or so on. I don't know exactly. But they're staggered. And this man is usually the last person to show up, usually between 9 and 10. And without a doubt, as soon as the boss leaves for the day, whether it's 2, 3, or 4 p.m., within about a half an hour, this man leaves too. What's he doing? He's working for eye service. He's seeking the approval of men and men alone. And so we avoid eye service, but the second description is kind of like it. It says not working as people pleasers. A people pleaser works in a way that seeks to meet the needs of others, but the motivation isn't others. The motivation's really self. A people pleaser may appease one individual, but he or she is simply doing it so that others will think highly of him or to gain the admiration or the appreciation from an individual. Ultimately, the people pleaser isn't selfless. The people pleaser is selfish. I don't remember if it was in a song or one of his writings, but Lecrae once indicated, if you live for people's acceptance, you will die from their rejection. Amy Medina knows about this in an article she published this week titled, People Pleasing is a Shapeshifter. She shares the story of how she is growing in maturity and how she has found her identity in Christ. But even despite that, she says recently she had these memories nagging her. Incidents in her life that she would recount over and over and over again. Each one was a situation in which she thought she might have been careless with her words. These weren't obvious moments of anger or obvious moments of offenses that demanded she, she needed to go apologize. These were uncertain moments. And Amy says that while she tried to ignore them, she tucked them away in her memories, they became more and more burdensome. She writes, I finally got sick of this and decided to drag these obnoxious memories out of their hiding place. I carefully scrutinized the memories. Maybe I'm just guilty of being too empathetic. That must be it. I'm probably actually just too kind. I care so much about hurting other people that I can't let go of the prospect that I might have offended someone. It's such a burden being this compassionate. She says she looked over them more thoroughly, though, and realized it wasn't an abundance of compassion at all. Instead, each incident involved someone that she respected, someone she wanted to impress, that she wanted to like her. And that's when it hit her. She was a people pleaser trying to please these others so that she would be accepted by them. And so her anxiety wasn't about others at all. It was about herself. And so her people pleasing was shape-shifting because it masqueraded as something different when it was really about herself all along. Notice the problem with eye service and people pleasing. It removes a Christian's gaze from the Lord and places it on people. 
when we become more concerned about what people think of us than what the Lord thinks of us, then our relationship with him begins to struggle. We become less motivated by our pursuit of holiness and more motivated by the pursuit of worldliness. This is what happens in our work. When we're working for the approval of men, we set aside the sanctity of work as something for him and make it an endeavor for our own glory. We set the Lord's agenda aside and instead seek people's approval. Do you see what happens here? We become enslaved to people. In this case, a Christian laborer is enslaved to his master by seeking his approval. But this pursuit of Christ, it liberates us from bondage so that we're free to glorify the Lord with our work by seeking to work for him. The Christian laborer works confidently, confident in the Lord's approval and purposes. We work then not as people are watching, but as though the Lord is watching. I want you to note third, the godly laborer works reverently. As noted by that last phrase in verse 22, it calls upon slaves to work with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Working reverently towards the Lord is to work fearfully of the Lord. This verse places the Lord at the center of our work. And so work is not just done for survival. It's not just done for personal gain. And it's not even just done for the sake of pleasing the earthly master. The central focus of our work is the Lord. And so this text elevates work from something purely secular to now something purely godly. To work reverently is to work wholeheartedly, as our text suggests. Some texts translate this as sincerity of heart or singleness of heart or wholeheartedly, each one capturing a a specific facet of the word. We know first that it signifies wholeheartedly. It indicates the same concept that is conveyed by Christians' love of God in Mark 12.30. Believers are told there, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength and all your soul. Notice the totality of that statement. To love completely and fully. If how we work is an expression of our relationship, as we just talked about moments ago, then the Christian labor works wholeheartedly because he loves his Lord wholeheartedly. And so from his soul, this means the worker works. This is because a Christian cannot have a divided heart. James writes that one who has a divided loyalty is double-minded. He's unstable and he's tossed about. The one who works cannot be divided by loyalty for his earthly master and loyalty for his heavenly master. He cannot divide between his loyalty to wages and his loyalty to his Lord. And he cannot even divide his loyalty between the work itself and a loyalty to Christ. Instead, the one who works does so with wholehearted reverence for the Lord. If one is loyal to Christ, all these other aspects follow. As an example, the one who labors for the heavenly master is going to be obedient to the earthly master. 
And so the one who labors well for the Lord will labor on behalf of the Lord. Notice also that our translation in the ESV says that it is a, with a sincerity of heart. Literally, that translates singleness of heart. Once again, conveying that a heart is undivided. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we're, we're still in the midst of this mighty Sermon on the Mount. And we come to a point when Christ exhorts the people to lay up their treasures in heaven and not on earth. And so we get this in verses 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so once again, we, we see verse 24 exhorting believers to remain loyal to one master, God, because it is impossible to serve two masters. Notice what happens at the end of verse 24. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. In the case of our text, the earthly master is money. But in Colossians, in in our text there, the earthly master is an actual person. But it really doesn't matter who or what the master is. A person cannot serve the Lord and anything or anyone else. I want you to note something else with this verse, though. Go back to verse 22. It says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Well, that relates to our text in Colossians, doesn't it? Does that make things clear? Look at the word eye. This is not our normal pattern of speech. When we discuss body parts like eyes and ears and legs and arms, things that we have two of, we usually use a plural form, unless we're referring to a specific one. This arm hurts. Otherwise, we say, I've got my arms. But the text here is singular. It doesn't say eyes, as in more than one. It says I, only one. It's as though to say, like, we have only one heart, we have only one eye. This is taken further when you look at that phrase, if your eye is healthy. The word for healthy there is single. The same word used in our text in Colossians to mean singleness of heart. Matthew 6.22 really reads better when you look at the King James Version which says, if therefore thine eye be single, if your eye is single, 
Why? Because a single eye indicates a concentrated focus that will lead a person consistently in the same direction. One eye is not looking at something on this side, while the other is focused on something unrelated and thus dividing the attention. One single eye, it forces the bear to look forward and move forward. Douglas Moo indicates that this one eye suggests unvarying focus that produces consistent conduct. Meaning that we're so focused on the Lord that our conduct will follow the Lord. And this is what we see in our text in Colossians when we discuss our work. That we are so focused on the Lord that our character and conduct at work will be conducive of our relationship with the Lord. That's what we see. The slave works wholeheartedly with a single focus on the Lord because he fears the Lord. In what some Bibles will title Samuel's farewell address as part of his final words. Above all the pieces of advice that the prophet Samuel urges, he ends saying, Fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. A reverence for the Lord defines a Christian life. It is a Christian's fear of the Lord that sets the Christian's life in the Lord. And so the one who fears the Lord lives in awe of the Lord. And the one who fears the Lord lives in accordance with the Lord's statutes. And the one who fears the Lord will one day live in the Lord's presence. Fear the Lord determines then how we work for the Lord. Consider some of the teaching of Proverbs and what it says about fear of the Lord. I want to point you to two two price statements. The first being Proverbs 1.7. It stipulates that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge. The second is like it, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. These verses are nearly identical, only exchanging the words knowledge and wisdom. The verses tell us the results of fearing the Lord. And when we fear the Lord, we gain knowledge to do the work right. And when we fear the Lord, we gain wisdom to do the work well. Therefore, we why do we work reverently? Because when we do so, we work knowledgeably and we work wisely. So working well begins by working reverently. The Christian labor is crucial. He is foundational to a thriving society. We see that this morning. We see here the model for work. And this model for work is to work obediently and confidently and reverently. Obedient in everything. Confidently in the will and purposes of the Lord. And reverently towards the Lord Christ. What is interesting about these verses, or this verse is that while speaking towards slaves, it really speaks of freedom. The call is to work. This call to labor, though, is actually a call of liberation. First, it frees a Christian from the strain of working for men, allowing him to work freely for the Lord. Second, it frees a Christian from the stress of looking over their shoulders to see who is watching 
It frees us from the anxiety about whether or not we have pleased anybody. And instead, our energy and our stamina can be directed towards working for the Lord, who is the very one who enables us to work. And third, it frees us to work wholeheartedly, knowing that whatever work we are doing, it is part of the Lord's plan for us at that moment. And so our work for Christ brings us freedom in Christ's creation. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you this morning, Lord. And Father, we're, we, we think of your instructions to slaves and its relevance to us today as, as laborers, not just for a job and not for people and not for ourselves, but laborers for you, Lord. Father, we see this model that you've inscribed into your word, this model to work. <coughs> Father, I pray that it would transform our view of work, not as a burden, but as a, a blessing, as a way we can honor and please you, Lord. May that be our takeaway today. May we work fully and totally committed to you, and thus working obediently and confidently and reverently. And we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. May your spirit continue to just pierce our lives. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.